It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, January 27th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. I am so happy that you're here listening along with the rest of us. Welcome. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we are honored to have you. We are grateful to have you. If you cannot listen live, as so many of you do so faithfully, and we thank you for that, there's also a podcast that you can get on demand for free every day. We also thank our podcast listeners. Those numbers have really swelled a lot. We appreciate that. GuyBensonShow.com is your one-stop shop for all of it. GuyBensonShow.com or also wherever you get your podcasts if that's the route that you choose to go. On today's program, here's who we've got for you. Juan Williams. He'll be here later this hour. We'll talk to him about the Supreme Court vacancy. The president's promise that he will pick right out of the gate a black woman, and he'll figure out who that black woman is later. But that was his pledge on the campaign trail. Does that strike Juan is strange at all, or is he all gung-ho for it? We'll ask him. Coming up in our next hour, Congresswoman Young Kim, a Republican from California. I have long admired her. We have not had her on the show before, so I'm really looking forward uh, to that maiden voyage for Congresswoman Kim here on The Guy Benson Show coming up in our middle hour. And in our final hour, an old friend of the program, Josh Holmes, of the Ruthless program, also a longtime aide to Senator McConnell. We will have him here talking about the national environment. Plus, he recently had a chance to go down to Florida and interview Governor DeSantis in front of a 1,000 people who showed up in the middle of an afternoon on a weekday. We'll ask him about that experience, what that was like, and his impressions of Governor DeSantis. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Let's bring you our customary recitation of the stats on COVID. 72.9 million cases all in. And that's a lowball number for the reasons that we always discuss in the United States. That is technically, officially, the cumulative number, and it's nowhere close to accurate. There are millions, millions, millions more cases that just weren't logged or officially reported. The death toll from or with COVID in the United States since the beginning of the pandemic is now 874,753. The Dow is up 61 points to 34,228 at the moment. It's bumped back into the green. It has rallied over 700 points today. It has been pretty wild up in New York, and we will let you know how the trading day closes in a matter of minutes, just about 51 minutes from right now. We begin today's show with a check-in on what we like to call from time to time Dems in disarray. And the Dems are most certainly in disarray. You have Senate Democrats whining to Politico in the Washington Post about the strategy, if you can call it that, from Chuck Schumer 
over the last year plus. You have the second leading Democrat in the House, Steny Hoyer, openly questioning the validity and legitimacy of future elections if the Democrats don't get their crazy so-called voting rights power grab through, which they're not going to. So that unbelievably reckless pattern, the big lie, Democrat style, continues. Nancy Pelosi's out there giving super weird interviews and making strange statements. I guess she has announced she's running for re-election. I'm not surprised. She could not possibly, even though she's really getting up there, as the Speaker of the House, she could not announce her retirement. Not now. She would be the 30th House Democrat to say that she wasn't seeking re-election in November. That would be a disaster for fundraising and all. So even if she intends to step down shortly after winning again, because it's San Francisco, she's going to win. Just for appearances and fundraising and the sake of the party, she has to go through the motions and say, I'm running again. Now, hey, she might be running again with the full plan to break her previous promise and run to be speaker if the Democrats don't lose the House, but I think they're probably going to lose the House. Dems in disarray, and it starts at the top. And, I mean, maybe some of you get tired of when I go through all the horrific polling data for President Biden, but I have to confess I don't. At least not yet. I have not grown tired of it yet. So as long as it keeps coming, I can't stop, won't stop. Two new polls out in the last two days nationally now peg the president's job approval rating in the 30s. He is below 40% in the Harris-Harvard poll. He is below 40% in the Monmouth poll. In the Harris-Harvard poll, listen to this data point. Quote, 57% of suburban respondents say they are more likely to vote for a Republican candidate in the midterm elections, while 43% say they'd be more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate. The poll found the same results, 57-43, among voters labeled independent or other. So that is a 14-point spread in this poll among suburbanites and independents. Let me just say this. If Republicans win suburbanites and independents by even half that, let's say seven percentage points in November, it's going to be a bloodbath politically for the Democrats. For those numbers to be double digits right now is just a disaster for them. And think about it. We know that Republicans have run up the score with uh, rural Americans. We've seen that at the presidential level. We saw it just recently in Virginia, where rural Virginia came out in force for Glenn Youngkin, like eye-popping margins for him. So if you have the rural vote sticking with the Republicans and getting redder, and particularly white, non-college-educated voters growing redder and redder, then you bring suburbanites back into the fold, and you have independence swing in the red direction, and if Republicans can maintain or even build upon some of the gains that, yes, they have been making among voters of color, Hispanics in particular, if you add that all up, that is the stuff that waves are made of. Now, don't count any chickens. Don't get complacent. 
None of this is guaranteed, and it's still January. There's a long way to go between now and November. But in this moment, looking ahead to November, uh, it is it is bleak out there for the Democrats. Now, here's a poll that I want to break down for you because I find this fascinating. This is Pew, Pew Research Center. They looked at the trajectories of President Biden on his approval, not just overall, but on multiple issues. And the trajectories are all negative. And in this poll, he is, I believe, at 41% approval overall, which is dreadful. But then they ask about his handling of specific issues. And ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. President Biden, according to the Pew National Survey, is underwater by double digits on every single issue that they've polled. Every one. So his best number on an issue is COVID and the economy. And I say best with air quotes because he's at 44% approval on that. Or, you know, 44%, the way they're phrasing it is, are you confident or not confident? So he's at 44 confident, 55% not confident, minus 11 on his handling of COVID, minus 11 identical on the economy. These are his best numbers on issues. He's at 43.56 underwater on handling an international crisis. Good thing that's not happening, right? On criminal justice and crime, he's at 41.59. 18 points underwater. Working effectively with Congress. This was one of the things that he was supposed to be good at because he was in Congress for 100 years. 41.59. 18 points underwater. On immigration, 40-59, 19 points underwater. Dealing effectively with China, 39-60, 21 points underwater. In dealing with our greatest global adversary. And then this is the one that I think really has to burn and is so damning and telling and instructive about the way that he has presided over the country and the way that he's decided and chosen to operate his presidency. On bringing the country closer together, unity, he's at 3069. He is nearly 40 points underwater on unity, which was a central message of his campaign. We've done the flashback before. I think it's worth remembering again. This was after he was elected when he declared victory on that Saturday evening. I didn't say it. Republicans didn't say it. He said that one of the most important mandates that he got from voters, because remember, he campaigned from the basement. He basically said, see the guy who's president. I'm not him. I'm not going to be like him. Let's crush the virus and be nice to each other again and get back to normal. And he won. And there was at least at that time some self-awareness. He said his mandate from voters was unity, dignity, cooperation. Cut 11, this was last November. For all those of you who voted for President Trump, I understand the disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple times myself. But now, let's give each other a chance. 
It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies. They are Americans. They are Americans. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. Okay, enough. That was the gist. By the way, I said that was last November. Of course, that was November 2020. Last November, Virginia swung 12 points to the Republicans. New Jersey swung, I think, 13 points toward the Republicans. But you heard the president's words. Now is the time to heal, to set aside the harsh rhetoric, to lower the temperature. We are not enemies. We are Americans. Okay, Mr. President, how are things going these days? Atlanta, Georgia, this month, cut 10. History has never been kind to those who've sided with voter suppression over voters' rights. And it will be even less kind for those who side with election subversion. So I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide, to defend our elections, to defend our democracy. Unrecognizable from the last clip. That's a choice that he made. In the same speech, he said that he would fight our enemies, foreign and domestic, and he emphasized that. Talking about his opponents who didn't support the power grab, crazy federalizing of our elections with all these unpopular provisions. He went from saying... People who disagree with us are not our enemies to calling them our enemies in a matter of months. Go figure that President Unity is now underwater by nearly 40 points on Unity, according to Pew. And by the way, the state where he gave that unhinged rant, Georgia, new polls out this week from Georgia, The latest one, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, has him 30 points nearly underwater on approval in Georgia. He's at 60% disapproval in Georgia. No wonder Stacey Abrams stayed away from him. Speaking of Stacey Abrams, she's trailing the Republicans in the governor's race. Raphael Warnock trailing the Republican in the Senate race. If Republicans can stick together and turn out, this president is so far underwater in Georgia, those victories are right there for the plucking and joe biden has done this to himself a few more tidbits i'm not done we'll get to those when we come back it's the guy benson show guy benson will be right back this is jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for fox across america where we'll discuss every single one of the democrats dumb ideas just kidding it's only a three-hour show Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. As you hear me say, when you're in the arena, you have to be able to take a punch or throw a punch for the children. 
There's Pelosi on the Guy Benson show announcing her re-election. Throwing punches for the children. What a weirdo. I was talking in the last segment about some of the uh, polling data here. I wanted to bring you a few more nuggets. So there are now polling averages showing new highs for the Republican Party when it comes to their lead on the generic 2022 congressional ballot. Republicans, on average, now have roughly a four-point lead in the real clear politics average over the Democrats on this metric. And this is a metric where Republicans are often, at best, tied. They sometimes have pretty good cycles even when they are slightly behind on this metric, the average uh, generic ballot. But both at 538 and Real Clear Politics, they are now ahead by a greater margin than they have been the entire cycle. Monmouth, that new poll that came out yesterday that has Biden, I think, at 38 percent overall approval. And incidentally, in that same poll, Monmouth, they asked the American people, should passing Build Back Better be a priority? You know how many people said yes? 24 percent. The American people cry out for Build Back Better. Less than one-fourth of them do, right? Fewer than one out of four Americans actually prioritize that stalled, failed Biden agenda items. That bill needs to stay dead. But in the Monmouth poll, which has Biden at 38.55 overall on approval, disapproval, they asked the generic congressional ballot question, which party would you rather control Congress? Republicans are up by eight points Among independents, they're up by nine points. Women side with Democrats by two points, so roughly tied. However, the gender gap is enormous. Republicans lead by 17 points among men. So, I mean, this is, again, premature. It's not election season just yet, but... These numbers are so bad that even a somewhat modest comeback by Biden and the Democrats would still put them in bad position. They're just in horrific position right now. New Hampshire, big Senate race coming up in New Hampshire. Biden's at 39 approved, 60 percent disapproved in a state that he won with 53 percent of the vote in 2020. It's ugly out there for Joe Biden, and he deserves it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Appreciate you listening each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com, podcasts always free. We welcome back to the program now Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, author of multiple books, including What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Juan, good to have you back. My pleasure, Guy. How are you, my frozen friend? It is. It's cold out there. I got some snow, I guess, coming to our area pretty soon, allegedly. Uh, so we'll see if that actually materializes perhaps tomorrow, heading into the weekend. 
Juan, I want to ask you first about this Supreme Court vacancy. If you have any thoughts, first of all, on Justice Breyer and his legacy, and then we can go from there. Sure. Uh, So I've dealt with Justice Breyer on a few occasions, uh, beginning with when I wrote my biography of Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American on the court, and later because I know Justice Thomas. Uh, And, you know, what always struck me about Justice Breyer is what a reserved, um, discreet man he could be, and a good friend uh, to his fellow justices on the court. And the reason I make mention of this guy is that the court is now viewed as such a political institution, but if you look at Breyer's record, at his rulings, his writings, what you see is a guy who really tried to suggest that he was looking at the facts, uh, he's often seen now as the senior member of the liberal bloc on this polarized court. But he doesn't see himself that way, and he didn't see the other members of the court that way. I just mention that because I think it stands apart from the way Americans are looking at the court, especially as we approach abortion rights rulings, affirmative action rulings, that you know the court has become just like every other part of the government. Uh, you know, You know, it's the left versus the right. Yeah, I read a a story about him, an anecdote about Breyer back to 2000 when the court was looking at Bush versus Gore and that whole case about the 2000 election. And the tensions were very, very high. And apparently the clerks, so not the justices, but the clerks were not speaking to each other. The conservative clerks and the liberal clerks, they were so angry at the other side, they weren't speaking. And Breyer decided to come to the cafeteria where the clerks ate, which justices apparently like never would do, but he showed up to everyone's shock, like, oh my gosh, Justice Breyer's here, and he went down and sat at a table with conservative clerks and just chatted with them, just to set an example. This is not what we do here. We can still get along, even if you know these are tough issues and we disagree. And I think that that's a really cool story about him. In the meantime, Juan... Looking ahead, of course, we always do that when there's going to be a vacancy on the court, uh, you know, some sort of confirmation process moving forward. I wonder what you make of President Biden uh, announcing and affirming that he will be picking a black woman as his nominee. This is something that he promised to do on the campaign trail. I know people uh, questioned that at the time. I guess my question is I have no problem at all with him picking uh, a progressive black woman as his nominee, totally his prerogative. Uh, you can make an argument that, you know, it's uh, this would be a, a time to have someone of that profile on the court since it hasn't happened before. Um, I just wonder what you think about the, the counterpoint, which is, is he sort of in some ways diminishing whoever it's going to be by announcing out of the gate, these are specific boxes that I'm going to check and I'm going to exclude everyone else based on sex or race And you need not apply for the position unless you are a black woman. And I sort of thought of it this way. You know, if Fox and our our wonderful bosses at Fox News came out and said, oh, we've got an opening on a show and we really want to give it to one of our people who's gay. And obviously that might benefit me. I might be on a very short list to get a show at Fox News and I'd be excited about that. But I'm also kind of wondering, is that how I want to get a program because of something about me as opposed to, you know, my my record and, and what I do on the air, my body of work. I'm just sort of struggling 
with coming out and making those types of identity-based promises first and foremost to the exclusion of a lot of people and how you view it? Well, I think that's just the wrong perspective. I think, you know, I mean, it's not because I'm your friend. I just know you know your work. You're pretty qualified in my book. I don't, you know, if they want to make a decision because they want to advertise some aspect of your persona, that's up to them. But if, if you're going to argue with me and say, well, but now the questions emerge about my qualifications, I'd say, no, I don't have any questions about your qualifications. The people that President Biden is looking at for this Supreme Court seat are all eminently qualified people on the D.C. Circuit, which is often the launching pad for right. Supreme Court justices. People Judge who Brown, as clerks. Brown sorry, Jackson. Uh, Judge yeah. Brown Jackson in particular. In fact, no, and that's the thing, Juan. Yeah, I was she, just reading. Hang on, let me finish. I, she sure. was a clerk to Justice For Breyer. In fact. Yep. So you, what you see is she's eminently qualified. The thing about that kind of thinking, and I'm so sorry that you engage in it, is that it invites people to say, oh, a black person, a black woman. Oh, gee, there must be better qualified white men. No. Because most of the court is, has historically been white men. We've only seen two black people, two black men, and five women, five white women until now. So everybody who's qualified, oh, you don't say, oh, oh, Kavanaugh. Gee, that guy looks pretty political, but nah, 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 he's a white man. That's just terrible thinking, and I think it hurts not only minorities in this country, because it invites suspicions about their qualifications and their work product. I think it's damaging to everybody, white and black, because it, it's, it's suggesting, oh yeah, we're going to be always divided and finger-pointing, rather than celebrating the idea that after, was it 130 or 40 years, there's finally an opportunity to say, I look at the Supreme Court and I see some diversity in terms of a black woman? No, but Juan, I think that you're, I think you're getting this backwards, because the thing, in my view, Juan, is I've done some reading about Judge Brown Jackson, who seems to be, at least based on what I've seen, the leading candidate, maybe one of them, if not the leading candidate, and she is absolutely eminently qualified. If, he, if she were to be picked, she would be a totally qualified, extremely well-credentialed nominee for the Supreme Court. I don't know about all of her background. I don't know all about her worldview. But just on paper, totally, totally qualified in my view. I am not questioning that. I think the questioning that some people might factor into this and start to raise these questions is saying, why not start with, I'm going to pick the best qualified person out there, and if it ends up being a black woman, then that's great. And Biden can say, look at the history that we're making, look at her qualifications. Here, The problem is he started with two immutable characteristics and worked backwards from there, as opposed to starting with the most qualified person. I'm not saying that there would be a white guy out there better qualified than this woman. I just think it's, a, I don't, to me, it seems just a little bit unseemly to start with gender and race and say everyone else who's not in this particular category, I'm not even going to look at them. That is not a reflection on any potential nominee's qualifications or brilliance or you know, uh, savvy or anything like that. It's more of a reflection. My criticism is not of her, whoever it's going to be. My criticism more uh, is of how Biden went about this. Well, I just think you should look at the historical record, which is that people who are not white men, uh, and boy, if they were thought to be gay, forget about it. But So they'd have to be a white, heterosexual, Christian male. 
anybody, no matter how well qualified, was not looked at, not considered for most of the history of our court. So I guess by the standard that you just said... Was that good? No, but I'm just telling you that's the reality. In other words, right? We I agree. That was not good with this with this reality. And now you're saying, oh, so now that we try to look at this awful reality and try to make the court more representative, oh, we're going to question the people who had previously been excluded. I think that's backwards thinking. And I would say, if you want to have a political argument about this. Let's look at the last president, President Trump. What did he do? He selected people who were on a list given to him by a conservative legal organization. Right. And they were, and what did he do in terms of even there? Two of the people that he selected, white men, and then he said, you know what, I'm going to save that third seat. If I get a third choice, I'm going to pick a white woman who's opposed to abortion rights. Oh, my gosh. So everybody who was qualified but didn't oppose abortion rights, hmm, guy, I think you're, you're putting yourself in a box here. What box am I putting myself into on? Because it's very limited. It's limiting. It's saying, oh, if it's a black woman, yeah, let's talk about no. her qualifications. No, but if no, it's maybe I... Coney Barrett and a white woman who opposes abortion and who's done by Trump, uh, that's fine. No, but Amy Coney Barrett obviously was qualified, the leading candidate being discussed for Biden is qualified. I'm not questioning qualifications here. Uh, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is I don't think the way that Biden said I'm going to start with gender and race and go from there is the way to do it. The list that you mentioned from Trump or from the uh, Federalist Society, that was a bunch of highly qualified people, men, women, whites, Hispanics, Indians, blacks. There was a wide array of people on that list. And a lot of the discussion was who's the most conservative, who's the most confirmable, those types of things. Not we're going to put this slot for this person who looks this way. That was not the first thing that was discussed before anything else. I think qualifications should come first. And it, as you said, there are black women who would be in the mix here who undoubtedly would be totally qualified for the position. There are, and that's who right. we're looking at. Yeah. Yes, yes, no, I get that. I, I, I feel like we're maybe talking past each other a little bit here. I'm not questioning the credentials of whoever this is going to be. We don't know who it is, but if it's, if it's Judge Brown Jackson, she seems, as I've said now several times, entirely qualified. I just don't know why he can't say, I'm going to look at an array of judges who look at the Constitution the way I think the Constitution ought to be looked at by a Supreme Court justice, and we're going to pick the best person. And that person ends up being a black woman who's going to break the glass ceiling and further diversify the court, great, you can celebrate that. I just think starting with those things, as opposed to at least pretending that you're going to look at all qualified nominees across the entire spectrum and then pick your person, it just feels limited from the get-go. And I don't know, in some ways I think it does a disservice to whoever this person is going to be because you will have some people out there yammering and chattering about, okay, well, is this an affirmative action pick? Even if this person is totally qualified, Biden has put himself or the nominee in the box, to use your phrase here. That's how some people view it, Juan. Respond, please. Sure. If you, my young friend, were around in the early 80s when Ronald Reagan selected Sandra Day O'Connor as the first woman 
Yep. Which was that, oh, you know what, uh, gee, I think he's just trying to make history by putting the first woman there. I don't know that she's the most qualified. Oh, gee, I would have said, wait a minute, we've never had a woman on the court. This woman is tremendously qualified. Why would you go to such a low level to question that? It seems like you're just saying everyone should be a white male. How no, about I, in the late on, 60s I'm not when saying that at all. Marshall was put on the court? President Johnson clearly wanted to make a statement about putting a black person on an all-white court. Right, so you do it. You do it. Yes. You don't you so, don't say I'm going to only to do it. He right, said this so you man is eminently qualified and would be in history even if I never put him on the court. Right, my and point is Justice you you put Thomas him on the court. On the court, Justice Thomas was put on the court. Guess what? Guess what, guy? He was replacing a black Supreme Court justice Thurgood Marshall. So President Bush clearly had in mind it was important that a person of color replace Thurgood Marshall. I'm not oh saying Oh my gosh. Juan, I think you're missing my point. I'm not saying that it was wrong for Reagan to seek out a woman or for whoever, I forget who appointed, who was uh, Thurgood Marshall, who appointed him? Thurgood Marshall was appointed by President Johnson. Johnson, for him to go that direction, for, uh, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor and Reagan, for George H.W. Uh, Bush and Clarence Thomas, for them to say for various reasons, I'm going to move in this direction and have that, I'm sure, part of the internal deliberation. But you put the person out saying this is the best American that we have for the vacancy without coming out beforehand and saying, and I know Reagan actually did this with Sandra Day O'Connor. I wish he had picked someone more conservative. I have no problem with the fact that he made history uh, with her as a woman. He was criticized by some on the right for saying, I'm going to make it a woman and I'll fill it in from there. I think that's part of the deliberation behind the scenes. I just don't know if we should be making pledges to the public saying, I'm for high-ranking government positions, I am only going to consider people of a certain... Like, if someone came out and said, I'm only going to pick a white man, that would be obviously outrageous. No one would say that. I understand the diversity point that you're making and how things used to be different in the past and they were not just and it was not fair and a lot of qualified people never got a look because they are a woman, because they were a person of color. That was wrong. I just think today, it just, I don't know, it feels a little bit off to me to start a search with gender and race as your first two qualifications and going from there. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying it should only be white dudes, Juan. Okay, well, all I'm saying to you is the history of this country and this court says that there's never been a black woman, and I think there have been throughout history a range, not a few, but a range, a, a wealth of qualified black women lawyers to serve on the court, never considered. And the idea that now that we're saying, yes, it is time, and we have a political leader who said this during his campaign. It's not like he just came out and said, yeah. No, no, yeah, I know. No, I know. Okay, so he said this, and the American people elected him, and he is keeping his pledge. And now people are saying on the right, like Guy Benson, are saying, oh, yeah, well, what about her qualification? He shouldn't have said that she, he's looking for a black woman. Well, of course, the history is there's never been a black woman. Wow, this is overdue. I'm glad somebody finally is paying attention to it. Okay. Well, I think that 
I will judge whoever it is based on, we know it'll be her, qualifications. I'm sure I will disagree with her judicial philosophy because it's a Democratic president. I'm a conservative. That's fine. The point is the way Biden has gone about it. You are right that he promised it on the campaign trail. He then won the election. This is, I, and I generally don't have a big problem when candidates do that sort of thing. You know, Glenn Youngkin runs in Virginia making promises. He's keeping the promises. The people who didn't like the promises aren't happy that he's doing it, but he's doing it. Here's Biden doing it. I just want to have the conversation because I have one perspective. Obviously, on this one, you had a different one, and that's why we wanted to hash it out. I am up on a hard break. I cannot go any longer, but Juan, always appreciate having you here. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're listening. So you may have seen this little dust up. We talked about it the other night on Gutfeld. Neil Young, I guess, was very angry about Joe Rogan and some of the things happening on Joe Rogan's podcast. Joe Rogan has a little podcast. You may have heard of it. And Neil Young was mad about it. And he wrote this open letter. So it's sort of, I guess, like broadcast to the world i don't like joe rogan it's irresponsible what he's saying and spotify you can either have joe rogan or you can have me pick and spotify said okay and they picked joe rogan which is a good business decision neil young's music is being uh eliminated and taken down from spotify so i guess you got what you asked for there neil congrats (laughs) next hour of the guy benson show coming up a lot more to get to don't go anywhere From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour is underway on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three, between three and six Eastern daily, every weekday, Monday through Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Bonus Benson on the weekends. Over on the podcast side, podcasts always available each and every day for free, on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert, the Dow, the wild day today, ends in the red, down just a hair, down seven points to 34,160. This story is extraordinary, and... I'm going to read from it in a moment. And it goes back to a point that I was making earlier in the week. And indeed, when I was up in New York, I did a bit of a monologue on this. COVID fear and irrationality and superstition and terrible public policy dressed up as science. We actually put that monologue on YouTube because we were on video up in New York And it has over 200,000 views. People have been uh, watching it, upvoting it, commenting on it, etc. And one of the points that I made there, and I also made in a subsequent monologue here on the show, was that some of the people who are in charge will not simply relinquish control over things. They're not going to just let things go as the data or circumstances would permit or would dictate. Because if that's what they were following, actual science, they would have made different decisions long ago. In fact, a lot of the people making bad decisions now and justifying it based on quote-unquote science are the same people who got school closures 
absolutely dead wrong in a cataclysmic way for students. For a year, they got it wrong in the face of the data, in the face of examples all over the world of schools being open safely without a problem. They kept those schools closed in their communities and their states because of safety and health, and it was exactly the wrong thing to do. And there has been no reflection on that whatsoever from these people. They're just on to their next things where they can control what people do. In the same vein, citing the same justifications that they cited wrongly on school closures. That's why we've been fighting so hard on the school masking thing, because it's the latest round of this. And one of the points that I've been making is they're not going to just let it go. It has to be taken away from them. You have to defeat these people. You have to break their grip on our society. It has to be done affirmatively and actively. And one of those people, just to put a name to the category, is a woman named Monica Goldson. She is the CEO of Prince George's County Public Schools in Maryland. So she gave an interview. Local outlet uh, WTOP reported this. And she was asked, as a person in charge of thousands of students in a major county in Maryland, was asked about getting rid of masks, or at least eliminating mask mandates, right? which is the Virginia policy, giving parents a choice, making it optional. And here's what she said, quote, I have not been thinking about a maskless classroom. Let's pause there for a second. Not a great quote. You should be thinking about it. It's the right thing to do. There's no science backing mask requirements in classrooms. You should be thinking about it. The Omicron wave is crashing now. We have to get kids back to normal. There are documented harms to kids, especially special needs kids, when it comes to wearing masks. So the fact that it hasn't crossed your mind is not a great sign. I mean, she's boasting about this. She's proud. I have not been thinking about maskless classrooms. Okay, here's the key quote that is just nuts. Quote, The only off-ramp, because she was asked about off-ramps to masking, the only off-ramp I want is the one where COVID no longer exists, Goldson said. I don't think that off-ramp will exist. I think this is how our life will be. So this maniac is saying she's not thinking about maskless classrooms, not now, Not a few weeks or months from now. Not ever. In her mind, the only acceptable off-ramp to taking masks off of the faces of children for eight hours a day is if COVID were to disappear, which we all know it won't. It's going to become an endemic illness like the flu. Every expert has said this. She seems to know that. She says, I don't think that off-ramp exists. We're never going to be completely rid of COVID altogether, even though it is unbelievably not a high-risk factor for children, right? It is not harmless for children, but relatively speaking, it is harmless to children. When it comes to severe cases, hospitalization and death, these things are vanishingly rare, especially death. We'll get into some of those stats coming up in the next segment. More data. Not that these people seem interested in data. 
This is a woman running a major school system saying the only off-ramp in her mind to school masking is if COVID completely goes away. And then she immediately admits that's not going to happen. So this is how our life will be, what, forever? The Monica Goldsons of this world have to be defeated. They have to be stopped. Parents have to go to school board meetings and show up and send emails and place phone calls and demand that people making these types of decisions actually follow the science. It is crazy. She's like, well, you know what? The flu is going to be new every year. It's not going away. Let's just wear masks forever, all of us, because that's the same mentality. When we talk about forever masking or forever restrictions, there are some people who actively want that. And they're not shy about saying it. They're saying it out loud. It's just, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you would think that they might just say, oh, yes, we're, we're eager for off-ramps. We all would like to see the day when this happens, and that day will come. But right now, out of an abundance of caution, the same dumb, bad, unscientific arguments they made for keeping schools closed for a year plus, we're just going to keep the masks in place. That would be still the wrong policy, not rooted in data, not rooted in science, not rooted in the well-being of children, but at least it would be like somewhat better messaging to not make it seem like you're a total sociopath hell-bent on keeping little children with face coverings on their heads for eternity. But she is so wrapped up in her own self-righteousness, and she's not alone in this, that she's saying, oh yeah, no, there's no off-ramp. The off-ramp is a thing that doesn't exist, so deal with it. I'm in charge. That's what she said. We're going to mask your kid forever. And by the way, a lot of the people who would clap like trained seals at that stupid, unscientific, maniacal statement are the same people who would say, hell no, there should not be school choice. Parents who disagree, if they can't afford to send their kids to another school where they won't be under the iron fist of Monica Goldson, screw bad, uh, screw them, too bad. Maybe the new phrase would be screw bad. That's basically the... (laughs) The, uh, the message, the slogan of the anti-school choice movement here at School Choice Week, by the way. Progressives, so-called, want parents to have virtually no role and no say. They want bureaucrats making these decisions. They want forced masking of every child in school. And if you don't like it and you can't afford to send your kid to the non-government school, well, that's tough luck. What an absolutely backwards worldview. This is one of the reasons that I'm a conservative. By the way, there's another reason that I'll get to later this hour that also illustrates the reason why I'm a conservative. Meanwhile, there's another piece in The Atlantic. I think The Atlantic, which is this prestigious left-leaning magazine, I think they're realizing, uh uh-oh, the Democrats are losing public opinion is shifting. We need to get our readership, our sort of elite lefty readership, out of the conspiracy zone, out of the paranoia neurosis zone. We need to give them a steady diet of reality or else we're going to lose. I think that's what the editors at The Atlantic are starting to worry about because they are, to their credit, putting out piece after piece after piece 
actually citing real data on this stuff. And there's a story in The Atlantic written by three doctors, the case against masks at school. And this is not the first one. They've done a bunch of these. We read from Mary Catherine's piece just the other day. These doctors write this. The overall takeaway from CDC studies that have been used to justify school masking, that schools with mask mandates have lower COVID-19 transmission rates than schools without mask mandates, is not justified by the data that have been gathered. That's what these doctors write, and they looked at the data, and they go into great detail throughout this piece. I can't redo the whole thing, but you should read it. Again, the piece is called The Case Against Masks at School. came out yesterday. And they go through and say there are a few studies that have been cited by the CDC and others saying, see, school masking is important because it works, and they absolutely dismantle all of them. Like, fatally flawed methodological problems with each and every one of the studies, and then just totally ignoring a bunch of other studies that showed exactly the opposite. For example, a study from Brown University, analyzing 20 and 21 data, so years 2020, 2021, from schools in New York, Massachusetts, Florida, found no correlation between cases and mask mandates. Another recent analysis of data from Cass County, North Dakota, comparing school districts with and without mask mandates, concluded that mask-optional districts had lower prevalence of COVID-19 cases among students this fall. Similarly, they write, the UK recently reported finding no statistically significant difference in absences traced to COVID-19 between secondary schools with mask mandates and those without. On and on it goes the actual data. They say ultimately it's up to public health officials to say you need robust evidence in favor of a policy balanced against potential harms. And these doctors argue that the potential harms outweigh the robust evidence that doesn't really exist. And they say it's time for mask optional policies. Yes. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I want to talk about some data that was shared by a medical doctor, Peter Atia. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. And he tweeted this. If you want perspective on how people under 35 years old die in the United States relative to COVID, take a look. And here are the stats. And I'm going to focus on children because he goes all the way up to age 35. So, like, for example, between the ages of 15 and 24, the death rate within that range, that age range, is almost 10 times higher for drug overdoses than COVID. It's 8.8 times greater than COVID on motor vehicle accidents. 8.9% higher proportionally on suicides versus COVID. Similar number on homicides. What about kids 5 to 14? Motor vehicle accidents, 10.5. That's the proportional death rate of 5 to 14-year-olds in America compared to COVID. Much, much higher. Suicide, 6.5. Among infants to kindergartners on motor vehicle accidents, it's 11.0. He also notes in his tweet, this doctor does, that on drownings, which is not actually in the chart, 
Drownings for kids under the age of five, 12 times more the death rate. 12x versus COVID. And this is very important data when it comes to risk analysis and public policy decisions. His comments, his replies to this tweet are filling up with a bunch of outraged, neurotic progressives just scathing, scolding him for even bringing up this information. How dare you do this in the middle of a pandemic and downplay the risks and downplay the deaths like they don't really matter. And there's other bad outcomes for kids, too, including long COVID. It seems like kids are at extremely low risk for long COVID. That's what the data is also showing. But they want to ignore that. They're saying, like, it's actually problematic or offensive or outrageous to share data that shows how low a risk kids are from COVID. It's none of those things. It's not outrageous. It's vitally important. If we're going to make public policy based on actual data and science, we have to pay attention to this stuff. No one has proposed banning parents, for example, from driving their kids around in cars, even though they are much likelier, the kids, to die in a car accident than die from getting COVID. No one is discussing that. And no one should. That would be crazy even though the risk and the death rate is multiple times higher than it is from COVID. Same thing with drowning, 12x, right? For some of these young kids, car wrecks, it's like 10 or 11x, 12x for drownings. Are we talking about banning kids from going into the ocean or lakes or swimming pools? We're not. So we have these other phenomenon, these other causes of death, homicide, suicide, drug overdose, drowning, motor vehicle crashes, all of which are much, 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 much riskier to kids than COVID. And yet we are restructuring our society, specifically targeting kids in a totally ludicrous, irrational way because of COVID. And when you point any of this out, even if you're a medical doctor, pointing to established information, actual data, official numbers, you are called callous and irresponsible for trying to play down a risk that you are actually demonstrating is not that high of a risk. And if you have people who are absolutely cemented in the belief that it doesn't matter what the data says and COVID is a huge risk to kids, they can raise their kids that way if they want to. It would be irrational. It would be unfair. I think some of the stuff that's been done is actually abusive. But that's their call for their kids and their family. Don't insist that the rest of us ignore this information. And don't bully and upbraid doctors for sharing information. You know that you are not really in the science cult that you think you are when you are attacking medical doctors for sharing information and actual data. You would think some people might take a quick step back and a breath and say, maybe I need to reevaluate. Maybe some people are. But the dead-enders are never going to let go, which is why you have to pry decisions out of their hands. Take these decisions away from them for society. They can run their lives. They can run their families. They cannot run our society. Enough. It's the Guy Benson Show. More coming up. Congresswoman Young Kim of California with her debut on the show. Looking forward to that when we return.
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're at the midway point of today's edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. And with us now for the first time here on the show is Congresswoman Young Kim, representing the 39th District of California. She's a Republican serving on the House Foreign Affairs and Small Business Committees. Congresswoman Kim, it is great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Guy. It's good to be with you. I want to start with an issue that I know is really impacting Southern California. We've been reading about it and seeing videos and sort of viral clips, but your constituents, it's much closer to home for them. It's right in your backyard. The explosion of crime, both violent crime and then sort of the looting and robbery, just the breakdown of the rule of law in Los Angeles and the surrounding area. If you can just speak to that, what you attribute it to, and what you're hearing from your constituents about it. Sure. I represent a very diverse community, including many Asian American small business owners. Uh, As you mentioned, my 39th district spans over three counties, Los Angeles, Orange, and San Bernardino counties, and especially in the L.A. County area of my uh, district, we saw hate crimes targeting our community during COVID-19, and many are still concerned with public safety due to rising retail theft and smashing grab crimes. And also, during the uh, COVID, we had a lot of homelessness issue where the homeless population linger around the restaurants, causing the uh, concerns for the owners because customers don't want to come to the restaurant where they see a lot of homeless people. This issue has been uh, discussed and uh, LA County Sheriff's Department and local law enforcement has been bringing this issue to my attention. So we've had some roundtable discussions to address that. And furthermore, in the midst of a supply chain crisis, and container backlog at the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, which makes up the San Pedro port complex. The criminals are breaking into cargo containers on the Union Pacific Railway and Mm -hmm. stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of goods, and we've seen this in the news all the time. And according to the Union Pacific, they say thefts have increased, as you heard, 160% on L.A. County rail tracks with 90 containers broken into each day. You know what? I attribute this to California's Prop 47 and L.A. County D.A. Gascon's zero-bail policies. They are contributing to these public safety crises and endangering our communities. So I support law enforcement. I think it's critically important, but unfortunately, it has been politicized. That's why I helped introduce a bipartisan bill to fund the cops on the BEAT grant program that will directly support law enforcement agencies in hiring and training officers, including many law, uh, you know, police departments, including Anaheim Police Department. And then one other thing is I also joined my fellow friend and colleague, Congresswoman uh, Michelle Steele, sending a letter to A.G. Uh, Garland as well, demanding that those responsible are held accountable and Democrats in D.C. push similar soft on crimes nationally. Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, all a pretty comprehensive look that you just gave us. You mentioned it briefly, but kind of moved past it quickly. The absolute explosion of hate crimes directed at members of your community, the Asian American community, uh, it is extremely disturbing. That has to be something that you hear about a lot because I can understand why people would be very afraid. I mean, and it's not just in California. We've seen it in New York and elsewhere. It's outrageous. Yeah, 
Exactly. Especially in those uh, large communities and cities across the country where there's a large Asian American population, they have unfairly been targeted by the hate crimes. People, uh, you know, attacking them and saying, hey, you caused the COVID-19, you brought the coronavirus. That is totally uncalled for uh, to the point that who would have thought as a freshman and new, newly uh, sworn in member of Congress, my first act was to appeal before the House Judiciary Committee to testify that Asian Americans are not particularly responsible, nor any specific ethnic community groups is responsible for the COVID-19. And I had to uh, use that as an opportunity to educate my colleagues that we need I mean, we, we really need to work together and respect one another. We introduced legislation to address the hate crimes, and I've been speaking out uh, vocally to advocate and defend the Asian American community because it makes up a lot of my constituency. Right. But what I want to tell you guys is that no matter what we do legislatively, we cannot legislate hate out of our hearts and minds. We need to respect one another with respect and treat with each other with uh, respect because we are all Americans. Yeah, I think that's well said. One other question, sort of related. The U.S. Supreme Court is taking up a challenge involving racial discrimination in higher education. And when it comes to, for example, admissions into colleges and universities, and there has been, I think it's it's pretty black and white when you look at the data, systemic, because we hear all the time about systemic racism, right? And I think a lot of that is very overblown in the critiques of America. But one form of actual, literal, I'd say indisputable systemic racism is the discrimination based on race that happens in the college admissions process with Asian Americans really being targeted the worst. And I wonder what you make of that legal challenge and how you might respond to people who say, well, it's actually okay in the name of equity to discriminate based on race against Asians. That is completely wrong, as you know. And uh, America is not a racist country. And uh, judging others on race and promoting race-based education goes against American values, and it divides us further as a nation. I've been a strong advocate, even when I served in the California State Assembly. I even introduced, along with former Senator uh, Bob Huff, uh, a, you know, the legislation that basically calls for Harvard or Yale or any other higher education to discriminate Asian Americans uh, based on their race and uh, in the name of equity, just to bring uh, the numbers of different ethnic groups to be more uh, admitted into colleges despite their uh, qualification. I, I think that is really wrong. We need, uh, we need to uh, reward students who work hard. We need to judge them on their own merit, not because of their ethnicity or race. You have introduced something called the Rescues Act in Congress, and this involves accountability from the Biden administration on Afghanistan. I know that we haven't talked very much about Afghanistan recently. We've checked in on it here. I guess there are probably some echoes right now with what we're seeing from Beijing and what we're seeing from Moscow, having watched what we did in the U.S. meltdown in Afghanistan and Kabul in particular, and some of those authoritarian governments sort of judging and weighing the seriousness of the United States of America and how we treat our enemies, how we treat our allies. So there is some ongoing legacy right now in other parts of the world, but it's still an extremely dangerous place, Afghanistan, for thousands of Americans, legal permanent residents, 
and also, of course, American allies who helped us there for years, you don't want us to lose sight of that issue. You've introduced this bill. If you can just tell us, what would the bill do if you could get it passed? Absolutely. Thank you so much for raising that issue. Um, I introduced the legislation, but, you know, that's because I want to ensure that the situation in Afghanistan and our mission to save lives in Afghanistan is not over. I wanted to make sure that people understand what we're dealing with, this failed administration's uh, botched uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan left so many Americans and danger. And it is unacceptable that private groups working tirelessly to save lives in Afghanistan have hit bureaucratic roadblocks and red tape, prohibiting them from chartering flights out of country and receiving funding from the federal government. There is no oversight of the State Department's management of private evacuation groups from Afghanistan, including which groups they partner with, the criteria for those selections, how much taxpayer money is spent, and whether any of that money is ending up in the hands of the Taliban. So the introduction of my Rescues Act is to demand transparency and answers to these important questions from the State Department. And I also have an op-ed that is published in the Orange County Register. I want your readers uh, to uh, take the time to read about it because, again, what we've done in Afghanistan and what we continue to do uh, to help those lives in Afghanistan is critically important, especially the women and girls that we left behind in the dangers uh, in the hands of the Taliban. We need to continue to demand answers from the Biden administration on Afghanistan because this was a failure for our country and the American people and our veterans deserve answers. Congresswoman Young Kim, last question. Last week, President Biden gave a press conference. It was right around his one-year mark as president, and he said at that press conference that he has overachieved. Right, He said he has outperformed all expectations for him as president. I've been asking a number of my guests ever since what they make of that self-assessment from the president. When you heard him say that, that he has outperformed expectations in office, uh, what was your reaction? My immediate reaction was unbelievable. Under this administration in one year, when he claims or self-claims high achieving uh, achievements, I cannot name anyone because... When he said that, what came to my mind was the border crisis, economic crisis, the botched Afghanistan withdrawal, endangering Americans, undermining our allies, emboldening Putin and Xi Jinping, China. We know all about these things. There's more crisis under this administration in one year period than we've ever seen before. Yeah. Inflation, supply chain. Yeah. Supply chain crisis, economic crisis. The schools are closed. We have... You know, because of what what's happened, we had, um, gosh, you know, uncoordinated uh, the the lockdowns. It really affected our economy. I mean, I don't I don't know what he's talking about. We've had two major pieces of legislation: 1.9 trillion in the uh, Rescue Act plan in the January early part of last year, and then we recently passed the 1.25 trillion dollars infrastructure bill. I agree that we need infrastructure badly needed, but when there is no way to pay for it, and then we just keep spending and spending and spending, that is increasing our inflation, with, which is creating more problems that we are seeing. And Americans, uh, hardworking uh, families and workers and businesses are struggling as a result of our uh, unplanned uh, one-way 
spending without yeah. any plan on how to pay for it. So, oh, so he yeah. had a huge amount That's of waste. That's what was in, going through my mind. Yeah, in the COVID, in the COVID bill, you know, nearly $2 trillion. And then we look around and it took them forever to get the job done on testing during a massive Omicron wave. They didn't get that out in time. Schools were claiming that they still didn't have enough money to stay open, which was crazy. I mean, where did all this money go? Those are questions that I think will be asked and answered for months, maybe years to come. But the one word answer there from Congresswoman Young Kim, how did she react to Biden saying he's outperformed expectations? Quote, unbelievable. I think that sums it up pretty well. Congresswoman Young Kim, 39th District out in California, a Republican. Congresswoman, so glad you made some time for us here today. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much for having me. It's The Guy Benson Show, and we will return after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Josh Holmes coming up in the next hour. Here's a story that I want to bring to you, and at first blush, it might seem a little dry, but I don't think it is. I think this story actually really underscores one of the reasons that I am a conservative, which is... I do not believe that the government is terribly good and efficient and effective at doing very many things. And I think the farther we get away, the farther astray from core functions of government laid out in the Constitution, especially at the federal level, the farther away we get from that, the more wasteful things get and the more inefficient the government is, even on policies and in programs that are broadly seen as popular and that are sold to us as kind of no-brainers about what a good and just modern society ought to expect. So the example here is universal pre-K funded by taxpayers. This is a big applause line for Democrats. I bet you it polls well. I bet you it does well in focus groups with parents. The idea that we have to get our kids at an early age into pre-K programs, and if they can't afford it, the taxpayers ought to foot that bill because it's so important when it comes to the development and the education of our children. And so what we're told by the Democrats primarily is that we need to spend a lot more public dollars, taxpayer dollars, on programs like this. And it's an applause line. It gets put into all these laundry lists that Democrats talk about of things that they believe would make meaningful, important progress. And when you actually examine how these programs work, are they good? Are they effective? Do they do the things that we are assured that they do? In fact, we're sort of asked to assume that they work. Of course they must work. Who could oppose this sort of thing? Well, for years... Head Start is one of these programs. There have been studies published showing that Head Start is not an efficient use of taxpayer dollars. That Head Start, putting it bluntly, doesn't work well. And in fact, might not really work at all. Those studies are often ignored. Those results are sort of swept away. Well, here's another one. And it's even more sweeping in its indictment. I got this on Twitter. I saw Samuel Hammond at the Niskanen Center highlighted it. This was a devastating study of state-funded pre-K programs. And he writes that in policy, you rarely get stronger study designs than this. Random assignment, multi-year, with longitudinal follow-up. So this is, for lack of a better term, a gold-plated study 
across many years with random assignments in it. So they got rid of a lot of the possibilities for the data getting contaminated or not accounting for certain things. They really tried to make this as comprehensive as possible. And in this study, the headline is Effects of a Statewide Pre-Kindergarten Program on Children's Achievement and Behavior Through Sixth Grade. That's the premise. And here's the conclusion in the executive summary. Data through sixth grade from state education records showed that the children randomly assigned to attend pre-K, so the government pre-K, had lower state achievement test scores in third through sixth grades than the control children, i.e. kids who were not assigned and put into these taxpayer-funded state programs. The government pre-K system resulted in worse educational outcomes for those kids as they grew up. It is the opposite of the underlying assumption that we are asked to accept and fund with our tax dollars. And it doesn't work. Derek Thompson is a liberal who writes at The Atlantic, very smart guy. I know him a little bit. We often disagree. He looked at the study and he wrote this. The evidence of state pre-K effectiveness has gotten worse over the last 50 years, leading to today's extremely discouraging study. Either pre-K is getting worse or we're getting better at measuring how ineffective it is at raising achievement. I think that's an important admission. If they want us to give more of our money to the government to fund programs, the least we should ask is that the programs actually work and don't make things worse, which is not the case here. This is just like a case study, a microcosm of why I'm a conservative and why some of the assumptions from the progressive left ought to be challenged aggressively all the time. Because this does not occur in isolation. This is part of a pattern. The Guy Benson Show continues. Final hour coming up. Don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday a.k.a. Friday Eve, and we appreciate you being here for the happy hour. Every day we air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, and the 5 o'clock hour Eastern is our happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific, so delicious. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding even more very soon. TheLongDrink.com. Our website at the show, which is available for all ages, GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free at the end of every broadcast. It is on demand. No charge to you. Also, wherever you get your podcasts, you can check us out, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. Joining us now as we kick off our final hour today is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast. And Josh, it's great to have you back. 
Hey, listen, guy, it is great to be back. You know, I think longtime appreciators of our time together here on your esteemed program will know <laughs> that I've been pining for that finished long drink. And over the holidays, you were gracious enough to uh, allow me to try it. Boy, it was outstanding. Oh, it's so good. I was so delighted to finally furnish you and your lovely wife with some finished long drink. You were instantly fans of it, and you also brought to the Christmas party a lovely bourbon offering. And I felt like that was very on brand for you on several levels, including your connections to Kentucky and Senator McConnell. I was like, this is going to be good bourbon. And in fact, it was. It's already gone. So thank you for that. Excellent. Excellent. I want to look forward and talk about politics to come in a moment but just for a second let's pause right here and hit the rewind button to something you guys did just a couple weeks ago on your show the ruthless podcast which is quite a program i recommend it and i was particularly excited for your live in-person florida excursion where you went down there and had governor DeSantis show up to what sounded like a really big crowd, and I saw a video on social of people lined up around the block to get in for this uh, sort of live podcast taping. Talk about that experience. Talk about the energy down there in Florida, and then I have some questions about your impressions of DeSantis. Yeah, totally. I appreciate you bringing it up. It was it was an unbelievable experience. You know, we had over a thousand people in the middle of a Thursday afternoon in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, and it was just the energy was out of control. It was just through the roof. People were really fired up. I mean, the first thing you notice is you come from Washington, D.C., where everybody's sort of huddled inside, double masked, and you go down there, and, like, there's just this, this sensational difference in how people are approaching COVID. I don't want to say that they're, like, completely reckless because people take their own precautions, but they're just, they live in a reality that just simply doesn't exist in big cities in the northeastern part of this country. And it was it was just a lovely atmosphere, and we enjoyed the heck out of it. What did you make of DeSantis and the way that he answered your questions and his approach to the whole interview? Well, he, you know, look, he is, he's, he's got a hot bat right now. I mean, virtually everything that, that comes out of his mouth is like a, a, a electricity into the base of the Republican Party. Um, and it comes really naturally, right? I mean, he's been living through, as a governor, dealing with COVID and trying to push back on the left here for, you know, the last year and a half and basically bearing the brunt of of the, the leftist interpretation of what we should, should be doing during Corona or uh, COVID-19. And, and so, therefore, I mean, look, he speaks with a lot of credibility, but he's really, really got his finger on some energy right now. And, and I can say that the crowd itself was just sort of explosive. What did you make of sort of the fallout from the interview? Because some people in the press were like, ooh, it sounded like he was maybe taking some veiled shots at Trump. And then there were stories about the Trump people being upset and feeling like he's, you know, DeSantis is not grateful. And why won't he say he wouldn't run against Trump? And these reports that, you know, Trump is out there trashing DeSantis in private and both camps kind of scurried out and said, no, no, that's all fake news. They tried to pull you into it, your relationship with McConnell being like, is this a McConnell-orchestrated hit job on Trump? It got kind of crazy there. Yeah, you got to love NBC News. Just a real commitment to the facts at all times. (laughs) Uh, But the irony, Guy, is that during the, the course of the questioning, the question before the one that people interpreted DeSantis has taken a veiled shot 
was I, I simply asked him, how frustrating is it that regardless of what you say or how you say it, there are those in this corporate media that basically want to take it as an opportunity to wedge you against the former president. And we had like a long, nice discussion about how crazy that is. And then the next question, everybody's like, oh, there it is. Right. It proves the point of what we had just discussed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I don't think that was I don't think that was his intent. I think he was answering honestly about lessons learned during the covid crisis and things that he would have tried to improve upon in his own decision making. Well, and it seemed like I, more I of a shot to me. It seemed like more of a shot at Fauci than Trump. And he had previously in that same interview, because I listened to the whole thing, he was talking about how things were so much better when Trump was president on, you know, key metrics. So I felt like that was a bit of a stretch. People were trying to whip that into something. But I also don't dismiss reports that Trump is out there feeling at least on some level threatened and annoyed with DeSantis. And look, if those two guys both decide to throw their hats in the ring in 2024, I think it'd be very interesting to see how that dynamic played out, how they would interact, how they would go after each other. You know, that may happen. Totally hypothetical. Right now, I have absolutely no interest in any Republican anywhere, Trump or anyone else, attacking Ron DeSantis, given what the guy has been through, what he's done, the battles that he's fought, the scars that he now has, the victories that he's notched, and now the re-election campaign this year. Like, that to me has to be job number one, and any Republican who's interested in, in playing those types of games now, I think, is really missing the boat. That's really well said. And I think if anybody puts the 2024 ambitions above what needs to be done in 2022, not just with Ron DeSantis's reelection, but, you know, hopefully a takeover of the House and the Senate uh, at the Capitol, anybody who puts that sort of in the second place to positioning themselves, I think is going to feel the, 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 the brunt of anger that Republican grassroots people across this country are feeling right now, because it, it, people just want they're scared, right? They're concerned. It's part of the reason why Everybody appreciates DeSantis as much as he does because he was standing there while the left is basically trying to take their, all of their rights away all the time. And people want a difference. They want to change. They want to work towards a conservative comeback here. And I think there's a, a lot of lessons in that. Yep. And we learned a very painful lesson. By we, I mean just the center-right coalition collectively. Last January, so just over a year ago, we saw what can happen in a reddish, purplish state where Republicans are at each other's throats and not unified and you know, spreading rumors and doubts about each other and therefore not really turning out in the types of numbers that are needed because people are you know, demoralized or conspiratorial or just sort of fed up and over it. That is exactly what happened in Georgia. Two Senate seats were lost because of it, extremely narrowly. And if that wasn't a wake-up call about what can happen if Republicans decide to go through this fratricidal ritual, especially in closely divided states, I don't know what could spell it out more clearly. That cannot happen again anywhere, especially given what this map is looking like right now. I mean, a lot can change, Josh. You know this in politics. You've been around the block several times. A lot can change in the next 10 months. But the fundamentals at this moment in time are horrific for the Democratic Party. There could be pickup opportunities all over the place. And 
at least at the moment, pending other things changing and situation on the ground and events and all of that, but at the moment, it seems like the one thing that could maybe get in Republicans' way is Republicans. Yeah, yeah, no question. No question. Well, we've done it before, right? I mean, if you look at the elections in 2010 and 2012, uh, we managed to nominate candidates who had absolutely no business wearing the banner of the Republican Party and couldn't win the states that they were nominated in, right? We left four to six Senate seats on the on, on the ground there, and ultimately a heck of a lot of the Obama agenda uh, that was enacted wouldn't have been, you know? And so, yeah, this is a real, it's a real thing to watch. I actually feel okay about the way things are lying, uh, laying out right now. There, there are some super competitive primaries, undoubtedly. Yep. But if you look at, like, Pennsylvania and Ohio, for example, where they've got the, probably the most candidates who are, are qualified and could win – I think the primary is going to do us some good in both of those states. I think it's actually going to produce the candidate who has the best shot and the most battle-tested uh, to, to win. And I think the environment is certainly, as you said, conducive to winning, assuming we have a candidate who's, who's a decent candidate. Now, there are some other places, right? I mean, Missouri is a perfect place where we could self-destruct. He's got a, a former governor who had to resign in disgrace, who's now decided to run for Senate, and Eric Greitens. Like, if that, you know, that guy's the nominee, I think you got a real problem. And that's a Senate seat that if you don't win, you don't take back the Senate. So, right. yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, unquestionably. But by and large, I actually feel pretty good right now. Well, and Georgia was the site of that huge meltdown last year. Some new polling out this week shows a much brighter picture right now for Republicans and a really dark one, certainly for Joe Biden. He's a 60-plus percent disapproval in Georgia in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll. I mean, that might explain why Stacey Abrams didn't want to go anywhere near that temper tantrum that he had, even on her own signature fake issue down there. She snubbed it. I think we're seeing why. She's also trailing in these polls, as is Raphael Warnock on the Senate side, narrowly but still trailing. It's, it's not 2021 anymore. No, absolutely not. And it's starting to coalesce here. I mean, let's take Herschel Walker, for example. That's a, uh, what was thought to be a pretty competitive primary at one point. That That's basically over, right? The amount of money that he has raised, where he stands in the polls. I think Republicans have consolidated behind him in a way that, that gives him, obviously, an early lead over Raphael Warnock. When you look at the governor's race, like, look, that's a trickier deal. We've got a, There's a primary down there that I expect will probably be super competitive all the way through. But as you said, Guy, where the Democrats stand, in particular where Stacey Abrams stands in that state right now, is really not good, right? Really not good. And, and, and so to your point that you made at the top, I kind of think the only thing that stands in our way in states like Georgia is ourselves. And if we can figure that out, we should get to where we need to go next November. All right, last question. It's on this Supreme Court vacancy. And I made the point yesterday on TV and here on the radio and wrote it up this morning that I think maybe counterintuitively this could be a relatively low octane, low stakes fight as far as these things go, of course. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. I saw your former boss, Senator McConnell, the Republican leader, he put out a statement earlier today and it was pretty mild. Right. And I just wonder how you think this ought to be played and how you think McConnell and the Republicans will play it. Well, look, I think the Republicans, unlike the Democrats, have a fairly responsible way of dealing with Supreme Court nominees. What what they do, by and large, is sort of attack the credentials of the nominee. Right. They don't they don't 
do what Democrats did to, to Justice Kavanaugh, for example, with just mm-hmm. a, a complete character assassination that was grounded nowhere near fact. I think they're going to wait for the nominee to be named. Um, and I, I, at that point, I think there'll be a rigorous attempt to get through her record and figure out, you know, what this judge is, is all about. And so I, but I expect it to be serious. I mean, look, in terms of high octane, low octane, I, I, I don't know how to ballpark that. All I know is you have zero margin for error, zero. So if there's something that comes out during the course of hearings, everything's important and every sure. vote's important. And I, I think, you know, the likelihood of Manchin and Cinema uh, now finding something that, that can help unite them with Democrats is probably helpful for their political careers. But yep. they, they're also in states that, you know, if you're voting for somebody who's wholly unqualified or has serious questions and problems, that's also a big political liability you got to watch, too. Yeah, look, I, I tend to think if Biden – and look, if anyone's going to totally screw it up, it'll be Biden. But I think even he – can't I mean it's been like a 20-0 scoring run by the other team to use a basketball analogy he finally has the ball on a breakaway all he has to do is dunk this one with a safe pick and I think you get you know 52 53 votes and a win I think he probably won't mess it up but we'll find out and the hearings of course need to be serious and substantive non-hysterical the way that the left does it but substantive and that will matter and we'll be watching and covering it very closely here as will Josh Holmes and his whole team over at the Ruthless Podcast, which I strongly recommend that program. He's also founding partner of Calvary LLC. Josh, always enjoy it. Talk soon. Thanks a bunch, guy. Talk to you soon. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, and we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. And this story, this headline, made me happy, even though I'm not planning to watch too much of the Beijing Olympics because of where those Olympics are being held and all the reasons that you already know about. We've talked about it here several times. I am delighted that Jamaica has qualified for a four-man bobsled event for the first time in decades. And I guess the first time that they ever qualified was in Calgary, 1988. The last time they qualified was a decade later, 1998, in Nagano, Japan. And now, 24 years later, we have the Jamaican men's bobsled team competing on the world stage. And the reason that this makes me happy is because I am a child of the mid-80s, grew up in the 90s. And if you are of a certain age... The movie Cool Runnings is probably one that you saw and probably love. I must have watched Cool Runnings, I don't know, 10 times as a kid. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. What a great, dumb, ridiculous movie about the first ever qualification of the Jamaican bobsled team. There was the song, I don't know if I can still sing it, where the bobsledders were singing about Jamaica's bobsled team. It was just a charming 1993 flick that you can go down to Blockbuster and check out on VHS if you want. I actually really do recommend it. And the Jamaicans are back and will be competing in Beijing, and I hope that they do well. Christine, did you watch Cool Runnings? You're sort of in that age range. I bet you did. Uh, Not only did I watch the movie probably ten times or more, I saw it in the movie theater. Oh, so you were like an OG fan. 
Yes, it was such a good movie. John Candy was in it. John Remember? Candy was like the like the washed up coach, the disgruntled yes. coach who comes in and brings them to Olympic glory. Dan, you're also in that age range. Did you watch Cool Runnings? I must have worn out the VHS tape. I watched it so many times. <laughs> I had it memorized at a certain point in my life, and it was just one of the best of all time. And I'm guessing Quiet Wyatt, probably too young. Am I right? Yes, Guy, too young. I've never seen that movie. Oh, check it out. I wonder if it's available like streaming anywhere. Oh, it might be on Disney Plus. And I'm not a big <gasps> Disney fan, but you are, Wyatt, so you can go check out your Disney Plus. That's your homework assignment between now and the Olympics starting. You've got to watch Cool Runnings. I want to hear your review, actually. That could be highly entertaining. we got a break. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's commercial break time. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier today in our first hour, Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, he stopped by the program. And as happens from time to time, we had some disagreements on some things. Here's part of the conversation with those disagreements with Juan Williams. I guess my question is, I have no problem at all with him picking uh, a progressive black woman as his nominee. Totally his prerogative. Uh, you can make an argument that, you know, it's uh, this would be a, a time to have someone of that profile on the court since it hasn't happened before. Um, I just wonder what you think about the, the counterpoint, which is, is he sort of in some ways diminishing whoever it's going to be by announcing out of the gate, these are specific boxes that I'm going to check and I'm going to exclude everyone else based on sex or race and you need not apply for the position unless you are a black woman. And I sort of thought of it this way. You know, if Fox and our, our wonderful bosses at Fox News came out and said, oh, we've got an opening on a show and we really want to give it to one of our people who's gay. And obviously that might benefit me. I might be on a very short list to get a show at Fox News and I'd be excited about that. But I'm also kind of wondering, is that how I want to get a program because of something about me as opposed to, you know, my my record and, and what I do on the air, my body of work. I'm just sort of struggling with coming out and making those types of identity-based promises first and foremost to the exclusion of a lot of people and how you view it. Well, I think that's just the wrong perspective. I think, you know, I mean, it's not because I'm your friend. I just know you know your work. You're pretty qualified in my book. I don't you know, if they want to make a decision because they want to advertise some aspect of your persona, that's up to them. But if you're going to argue with me and say, "Wait," well, but now the questions emerge about my qualifications, I'd say, no, I don't have any questions about your qualifications. The people that President Biden is looking at for this Supreme Court seat are all eminently qualified people on the D.C. Circuit, which is often the launching pad for right. Supreme Court justices, people Judge who Brown, as clerks. Brown sorry, Jackson. Right? Uh, Judge yeah. Brown Jackson in particular. In no, fact, and that's the thing, Juan. Yeah, I was she, just reading. Hang on, let me finish. I, she sure. was a clerk to Justice For Breyer. In fact. Yep. So you, what you see is she's eminently qualified. The thing about that kind of thinking, and I'm so sorry that you engage in it, is that it invites people to say, oh, a black person, a black woman. Oh, gee, there must be better qualified white men. No. Because most of the court is, has historically been white men. We've only seen two black people, two black men, and five women, five white women until now. So everybody who's qualified, oh, and you don't say, oh, oh, Kavanaugh, 
gee, that guy looks pretty political, but no, 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 he's a white man. That's just terrible thinking, and I think it hurts not only minorities in this country, because it invites suspicions about their qualifications and their work product, I think it's damaging to everybody, white and black, because it, it, it suggests that, oh yeah, we're going to be always divided and finger-pointing, rather than celebrating the idea that after, was it 130 or 40 years, there's finally an opportunity to say, I look at the Supreme Court and I see some diversity in terms of a black woman? No, but Juan, I think that you're, I think you're getting this backwards, because the thing, in my view, Juan, is I've done some reading about Judge Brown Jackson, who seems to be, at least based on what I've seen, the leading candidate, maybe one of them, if not the leading candidate. And she is absolutely eminently qualified. If he, if she were to be picked, she would be a totally qualified, extremely well-credentialed nominee for the Supreme Court. I don't know about all of her background. I don't know all about her worldview. But just on paper, totally, totally qualified in my view. I am not questioning that. I think the questioning that some people might factor into this and start to raise these questions is saying why not start with I'm going to pick the best qualified person out there and if it ends up being a black woman then that's great and Biden can say look at the history that we're making look at her qualifications here the problem is he started with two immutable characteristics and worked backwards from there as opposed to starting with the most qualified person. I'm not saying that there would be a white guy out there better qualified than this woman. I just think it's, a, I don't, to me, it seems just a little bit unseemly to start with gender and race and say everyone else who's not in this particular category, I'm not even going to look at them. That is not a reflection on any potential nominee's qualifications or brilliance or, you know, uh, savvy or anything like that. It's more of a reflection. My criticism is not of her, whoever it's going to be. My criticism more uh, is of how Biden went about this. My full interview with Juan Williams, that entire back and forth, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day on demand. Again, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, take two with Cookie and her house-selling project, have they finally gotten the deal done with a new buyer? The drama continues. We'll get that update straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. It is Thursday. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home podcast free every day. All right, so this has been a saga Producer Christine, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, I think months at this point ago, she said that she had a scheme. The scheme was sell her house, make a profit over what she and her husband paid for it, move into an apartment for a few years, and then down the line when the market cools off, buy a forever home with her mother, a bigger house. And I said, okay, there's a lot of moving parts there. There's no guarantees. Things may not go quite according to plan, but let's see how this plays out. And her husband, Bobby, was a little bit resistant at first, but he then got convinced because they had a realtor come in and say, all right, actually, you could make a pretty handsome profit right now if you were to sell. And kind of last time we checked, she decided to take the plunge. They had a full price offer 
with a bunch of contingencies waived. And I said, you know, you better take that. Seems like a good deal. They did. But then some drama started. And the buyers wanted new things, and they were making requests that had not really come up before. And the whole system kind of broke down. The relationship got frayed. The lawyers talking back and forth eventually just called the whole thing off. Both sides were not happy with one another. And so that deal went away. It fell through. So that was the bad news. The good news was... Cookie's real estate agent had been begging throughout that process to keep showing the house because there was so much interest in it. And by the way, just anecdotally, I have a friend who's roughly my age, maybe a few years younger, and she had been looking to buy a house recently with her husband in northern New Jersey. And they had made offers on 15 houses, none of which they got. Because there were so many offers and bidding wars. So they had gone 0 for 15 until they finally were able to get an accepted offer in a town not far from where I grew up. So I was very happy for them. But that was an excruciating process. The market has been very hot. People want to buy houses. And producer Christine's house was seen as a real commodity. And people wanted to get into that neighborhood. So the demand was still high. And so when deal number one went down the tubes, they had almost immediately, like within days, an open house, and Christine was telling us she had three offers within, what, 24, 48 hours, three offers in hand. It's just red hot. So, Christine, take it from there. Talk about the most recent open house and then sort of the rapidity with which the offers started to come in, what the offers look like, where do things stand now? So what my real estate agent did was she took my house off the market, put my house back on the market, but up the price a pretty penny. So uh, we went, uh, we left the house Saturday and Sunday, had an open house both days. Apparently it was a huge success. And like you said, by Monday we had three offers. Um, My real estate agent did final and best offer had to be in by yesterday at 5 p.m. And when she called us at 7 p.m. and sent over all the paperwork, we had seven offers. Seven? Seven. Oh, my word. Mm-hmm. And how were you feeling about these offers? They were all pretty solid. You know, we we don't have anything like that first offer with waiving appraisal, but a lot of them said, listen, you know, uh, we'll put fifteen thousand. Like you know, if it doesn't get appraised for such and such amount, we'll throw fifteen thousand in. You know, it's okay. Or a lot of them did that. A lot with a lot of money down, which we were surprised because when Bobby and I bought this house over ten years ago, we didn't have that much to put down. So times have definitely changed uh, with the down payment. But really solid offers, all above asking. Wow, um, seven out of seven were more than your asking price, and the asking price was already increased. The we upped the we upped the uh, asking price probably by like twenty thousand from our first asking price, and and they all came in have, over. They all uh, the the but not the worst, but uh, the I guess it was like only one of them was ten thousand over, and then they went up from there. Wow. So 
So what are you going to do? Picked, we're rolling the dice. We're rolling the dice. We picked the best offer. Let's be honest. Like it, the most money. It is substantial. It is. I'm in. I was in shock. Um, I don't think when everything is said and done, that's going to be the price. And there's plenty of wiggle room here. But these people came Wait, in hot. Why? If they came in high and they're offering you the money, why wouldn't it be the price? Well, my fear is this house is not going to be appraised. Oh, it won't. It won't appraise. Here. Right? Because no. you can't. You can't get a bank to loan you money for what you're paying. They'll only lend you money for what it's worth. I think, yeah, from what my understanding. Now, these people are putting down 30%, which is really unheard of. It's a lot of money. Um, And this is a couple that they were about to close on a house last week, and the wife changed her mind. Oh, at the very last minute, they were out of returning route. They were one week away from closing, and the wife, which I'm in shock. I know a lot of lawyers probably hearing this is like, oh, that sounds like a lawsuit. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but the wife decided to bet. Are you worried that they might be flighty? No, 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 no. The buy, uh, the sellers backed out. Oh. The people that are buying our house, they were about to buy another house, and their sellers backed out. On that, they had they decided they decided they didn't want to move. Okay, so okay. these people are kind of in a desperate situation. Right, they are highly motivated buyers, and you guys are like not that motivated sellers, which is the great place no. to be in. <laughs> yeah, my real estate agent said that. She's like, you know, it's it's tough with Bobby and I because we there's nothing for us to lose to stay here. You know, we have a great house and a great neighborhood and. So we said, all right, let's roll the dice. Let's take the highest offer and see what happens. So all we are officially back in a returning review this morning. All the paperwork, they said. Oh, so you contract. accepted the offer. It's, it's now yes, accepted. We accepted. All it's all back into a returning review. So, Got it. We're so there'll be contingencies. <laughs> there'll be, you know, the, the contingency on the home inspection. There'll be the appraisal and all of that stuff. But your fingers are crossed. I don't know how much you want to get into here, but in terms of the profit that you're going to make, I mean, yeah. it sounds like it's going to be major. Well, listen, I don't want to say anything because I don't know if the bosses are listening, and I don't need this to affect a race. I still need that race, okay? <laughs> okay, Can we just that's put that fair. Out on the stipulated. And I totally stipulated. I don't want this to affect any bonuses at the end of the year, since Saint Guy Benson. <laughs> Excuse me, did you not get your bonus? No, I'm saying, I just don't want you to think, ah, she doesn't need it next year. Yeah, she's, she just got her bonus from her house. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I, I should make a note of that, but go on. Um, yeah, it will, it'll, it'll be good. You know, we will definitely have made our money off, you know, off this house, if it works. Like I said, we thought this was set in stone last time. Those buyers were desperate to get in here, and all of a sudden, over like ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, they just hightail it out of here. So That's we so don't strange. know, but I'm going to tell you this. My psychic said we're selling, and she Ugh, said she nope. saw us moving in April. So that's where yeah, I'm going. The, no, the, ignore the psychic. The psychic didn't realize that you were just about to get COVID and go to the hospital with migraines or whatever it was. So Maybe she didn't want to scare me. I was thinking about this. No. I also wanted to let you know we could talk about this next week at some point, but I am in touch with a celebrity medium. Stop. Yeah, I am. Stop it. 
The no, only wait. the only creature you need to talk to who's dead is Carousel the Pony and apologize for the murder. That's it. You can talk through this stupid person to the pony and don't give this person another cent of your money. Well, um, so are you saying you're not interested in bringing this person on the show? Celebrity. 100% not. Celebrity. I don't care. I do not care. Is it the Long Island medium? I'm not going to say a word because I don't want, you know, this person to get a bad press of any sort. I have not gotten my reading yet. (laughs) I just, I am astounded at the things. You are so, you are so careful with your money in some ways. And then you will go out and waste it on this crap. I don't understand it. I really don't. I just realized, honestly, my, and I'm not making this up. My husband has no clue about this. So, well, oh, he gosh. does now. Can, maybe we should, I don't know. Can we dump this? <laughs> no, we cannot. You've already said it. Bobby, you need to put an end to the madness. The psychics didn't catch the hospitalization that was coming. This I would just different. say, get your due diligence. No, you're not going to talk to dead relatives, or even dead yes. pets. No, it's not going to happen. You don't think it's not going to... Oh, hang on, hang on, Christine. Christine, hang on, hang on. I'm getting... Ooh, I'm getting a reading. Oh, I'm getting... Oh, I'm, whoop, hang on. I have a message from a deceased relative of yours to whom you were very close. The relative says, don't be an idiot, Christine. Stop wasting your money. There you go. There's your medium, your celebrity medium, yours truly. Are you satisfied? No. Well, I think, I think you should be. Let's just focus on getting your house sold and getting into this apartment, because the apartment people must think you're kind of crazy at this point, because you've been threatening to move oh, in yeah. for months. Yeah, we might have to find a whole different apartment. These people are just fed up with us. So, yeah, that's going to be another interesting saga. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully it all works out okay. And when will you know? Like, when will you have actual finalized assurances that the whole thing is not going to fall apart this time? A matter of days? A matter of weeks? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. We're hoping that a week or two we'll know everything. I mean, if I could get in touch with somebody that may know what's happening in my future, then I could give you more answers. Yeah. And the thing is, you can't predict the future. And people who claim that they can are full of it. The only thing I can predict is that the Guy Benson Show will be back here tomorrow between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, as it is every weekday. We will talk to you then for the Friday edition. Until then, have a great night. Don't waste your money. And we'll get an update from Christine soon on her house situation. Thank you for listening. Talk to you then. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.